Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. sisters and welcome to our show. One of our favorite anxiety sisters, Jen Kirkman is in the house. You know her as a comedian with two Netflix shows, an actor, a writer of best-selling books and award-winning TV series such as The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But we know her as a searingly honest and compassionate voice in the mental health conversation. She is currently hosting an outstanding podcast called Anxiety Bites. We're a little bit obsessed with that podcast, in which she chats with guests and reveals a lot about her own struggles, too. We are so excited to have her as our guest on our podcast today. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, ladies, for having me. I'm very honored to be a part of your podcast today. And can I just say that I'm also a little bit obsessed with her apartment right now. (laughs) Because like I have this fantasy that I'm going to like leave everyone behind and move to New York City back into a small studio apartment and with a nice doorman and be like really happy forever. Well, I am living your dream. I am in in a studio apartment in Brooklyn. There is a nice doorman, or I guess it's not a doorman because they don't open the door for you, but they're, they're there at the desk 24 seven to handle all all of your Amazon packages. Yes. And we call them the concierge. But um, yes, I have peel and stick wallpaper, one on each wall, different designs. Love it. I'm a and, it's uh, really, it's a lovely looking apartment. And you know how yeah. during the height of the pandemic, everybody was Zooming on all the TV shows. And so they had that Rate My Room. Do you remember? It yes. Was a, a website everybody was obsessed with Rate My Room and they would rate everybody's backgrounds. So if on a podcast you could rate someone's room, then we would be giving you a 10. Definitely. Thank you. Definitely. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to show it, but it's really pretty. Use your imagination. (laughs) We're going to jump into it. What do you think? Yeah. So like us, you, you said you experienced anxiety as a child. So we were wondering when your first memory of being anxious is and, and if you can just share in general about your, your whole sort of story of anxiety with our listeners. Absolutely. I, you know, it wasn't until last year that I realized what my first real moment of anxiety was as I come to know what anxiety means more and more. But um, so I'll tell you that at the end, but my first real anxiety was probably more physical and more in the panic attack realm. And it was when I was eight years old and I went on my first flight. I always wanted to fly. You know, this was the early eighties flying. If anyone out there listening is younger and you can imagine it, it used to be still a little glamorous back then. And we would see all these ads. I grew up in Massachusetts and fly to Orlando and Disney World. And, and you know, my family, we weren't wealthy and we, we never went on trips like that. And my sisters were a lot older than me and they were already in college and married. And I was eight. And, and I just said, can we fly to Disney World? And they made it work. And we did. And we went on Eastern Airlines, now defunct. I remember Eastern. You do? Yes. And back then you could walk around and check out other sections. And my dad talked to the pilot and he brought us into the cockpit. Probably what was happening is I was getting excited, but a little overstimulated because I'm taking it all in that I'm on this plane and there's an upstairs and there's a bar. I mean, it seemed like a lot of stuff, very heavy. And I'm in the, I'm in the cockpit, like in it. And I'm seeing all the controls and I don't, and there must be something going on in my head going, 
this is too complicated. No one can possibly (laughs) work with this. And so we go and sit down. And honestly, even though my dad had the best of intentions, I was completely overstimulated probably. Now, my mother and grandmother, I have diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder. And and I'm sure it's genetic and generational and, and learned and also in our codes. So we've got that going, which I don't know about. I'm sitting on the plane in between my mom and dad. Now, my mom has never flown. She's nervous, but she's not panic anxiety nervous. She's just nervous. So I see my mom bring out the rosary beads. Now, we're Catholic, but we're not religious. You know, it's church every Sunday, 45 minutes, and you don't think about it again. The rosary beads, they only come out when somebody dies. Like, this is crazy to bring the rosary bead. And she's praying on it. And I'm like, this is what we do when we're nervous or sad. And, you know, my dad, who did fly once a year for work, he was gripping the seat. So again, like they're just doing their little things, but it's it's got to be making a big impact on me. And so by the time we're airborne and then the sensation of the plane taking off, which is very intense if you're not used to it. So again, like what's happening is the perfect storm of feeling anxious feelings. And I don't have any ability to know what this is or to regulate. So here I go. By the time the wheels are up, I'm in full-blown panic attack. Mm. You know, it was just terrifying. It's all the feelings of a panic attack. It's heart racing. I can't breathe, feelings of unreality. But I know I felt like really unsafe and scared. And and at that point, there was nothing my parents could do to calm me down. Mm -hmm. So that was my first experience. And then we still went once a year, but it was like every year I geared up for my big feeling of I'm going to die for three hours on a flight until we had to stop going when I was about 13 because I couldn't take it. And so then from there throughout my life, I had panic attacks and it was usually around very concrete things. Like there was a made for TV movie that came out. I'm sure you remember called the day after. Mm. Yes. We all had panic attacks after the day. (laughs) So I'm like 10 years old and our teacher says, don't watch it, you know, for Anyone out there is a made-for-TV movie about nuclear war. It was absolutely terrifying. It was what would happen if we got nuked. And I mean, it was just like people on the freeway jam-packed in their cars and then the bomb hits and they turn into skeletons. It was quite upsetting. <laughs> like still scary now. Panicking, thinking about it. And I, my parents let me watch it because they were very much like, we want to know what happens if we get nuked. I mean, they I just like everyone watched it because I remember <laughs> sitting with my parents and watching yeah. it. Like, I think the whole country watched it anyway. So I just started having panic attacks, you know, every time I saw a sign that said fallout shelter. And then so now that I've I've started to panic on planes and anytime I'm thinking about nuclear war, which was quite often in the 80s, mm-hmm. even the Prince song, I'm not even joking, 1999 scared, me, even though I loved it. But, you know, he was saying these things, the world's going to end. And then my Nana, she's listening to this like conspiracy theory radio show in the middle of the night about aliens and this, and it gets all mixed up in her Catholicism. And so she's now believing in the world ending in the year 2000 and Y2K, you know. So now I'm being taught Jesus is coming back in the year 2000, also Y2K, nuclear war. So I am just a ball of anxiety and panic. And then in everyday situations, panic. So now I'm panicking at school. All of this to say, I didn't know what it was. Mm. And a few times during panic, I did think I was dying, not having a heart attack, but I thought I must be, it felt almost like these must be what it feels like in the last moments of life, you know, yes. before you yeah. see the light. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was just kind of this little secret and I, I kind of knew my family would be okay with it, but I just knew they didn't know how to help because so far. They had. So, you know, it was just, it was like, it's really the actions I took and didn't take that progressed it. 
is the shame, the hiding, the not knowing, the keeping it secret, and the just honestly assuming I'm not going to live a normal life. You know, when I get older and I don't know, I'm just going to have to go live in a group home somewhere. So I don't know. I don't have any, you know, there was no internet. I couldn't look up anxiety, panic, didn't know the words. So I was in the dark. We all were. I mean, and from our yeah. we all were because, you know, yeah. this is where we've come a long way, right? The, at least the conversation is happening. I mean, we have a long way to go. Yeah. And the three of us are very committed to furthering that conversation as much as humanly possible to save some poor eight-year-old <laughs> what you're going through, right? We want to, we want to help future generations understand brain disorders like anxiety and depression. But when we were younger, we had no way of accessing information about it. And it was shameful. We thought, you know, I thought I was crazy. I didn't want to tell people that, you know, I was floating out of my body when I would act because I thought, you know, then I'm going to, they're not, they're going to lock me up somewhere. So it's very frightening. And Maggie, at one point, she couldn't leave her house from her phobia, transportation and elevators. And so like you, she figured her life was just going to be, you know, living in her apartment and she figured she couldn't have kids and wouldn't have a family because she was going to be by herself and having things delivered. Not by choice, but I, or I couldn't work. I just thought I'll be in this apartment. And it's so interesting too, because, you know, I've had many therapists who've tried to put a narrative on this. Oh, well, the unsafety and your parents were too honest with you in the nuclear war. And it's like, I get all that, but that doesn't help me get better. Honestly, what helps me get better is going back to the first moment, realizing, recontextualizing it from almost a neuroscience point of view, which is I was overstimulated on that first flight. And I didn't have any tools to to calm down or to say, oh, these sensations are okay. Let's not let them get worse. And then from there, I began trying to stop and hide those sensations, which made it worse. And then I had them every day because a lot of therapists who aren't using CBT or kind of neuroscience methods are really interested in the story. And sometimes just I've learned that kind of took me off the path for a while. Yes, I definitely think so too. It sounds like they were interested in dissecting what your parents did or your childhood and whatever. Nobody has perfect parents, you know. Sure. The thing I was going to say about what I think my first moment of anxiety was is the other kind of anxiety that I have that I've worked on that that I've now recognized is more of an ADHD thing and has gotten me into trouble with interpersonal relationships. And so my first moment of anxiety that I didn't recognize as such until maybe two years ago, and I'm 47 now, was when I was five years old, I went to kindergarten and I hadn't gone to preschool or anything like that. And I didn't know the word parents. I knew mom and dad, mommy, daddy. I just, for some reason, even though I was like a really well-read kid and kind of mature from age, literally never heard the word parents. So I go to kindergarten first day and I'm not nervous at all. I'm so excited to go. And I go in and the teacher says something like, did you bring the something signed by your parents? And I flipped out because I didn't know the word. I burst into tears and went, I don't have parents. (laughs) So they hear a little girl whose mom just dropped her off. I don't have parents. And they go, something's wrong. She's being abused. And they sent me to the school nurse. And it was like, why don't you think you have parents? And I was like, because I don't. And nobody thought to think, do you know what the word means? And it was this whole thing. And then I said, well, yeah, I have a mommy and daddy. And they were like, okay. I mean, but by then it was already like, something's weird with this kid. And what was weird is instead of saying, I don't know what parents means, I have a complete emotional reaction 
from zero to a million. That's kind of based in the way my parents, my parents are very, I mean, they're older now, so they've slowed down, but they're very reactionary. They're like the Costanzas, you know, like they're just always yelling. And, and that was just like the home I grew up in. And sometimes it was loving and sometimes it was scary, but it was just like, everything was like, what? you know, like, it's like looking back on it, that's anxiety too, but nobody clocked it. Right. Mm-hmm. Sounds like just like uh, in Mag's house, anxiety was a bit in the air. In the air is the perfect way to put it. That's what we would say. Anxiety was just in the air. (laughs) I would like to bring up health anxiety because one of my favorite parts of your second book was the chapter about the womps. Only an anxiety sister could mistake sexual chemistry for a mysterious (laughs) heart element. I'm just saying. And I'm reading this and, you know, you're talking about a man that you're clearly attracted to and the electricity you're feeling with him, but you are actually concerned that you have a cardiac condition. (laughs) And all I could think of was, that's how I would feel. That's exactly what I would think because this is how an anxiety sister thinks. Do Do you have health anxiety? Not anymore, but yeah, it's so funny because in that book, I talk about going through a divorce and, you know, for the, for the year leading up to, to separating with my, my then husband was, was, you know, we weren't very attracted to each other. So I felt very shut down and it was, I couldn't figure out if it was towards him or just in general. So I kind of figured at first it was just in general. I don't know why, but I just thought, I guess I'm done with feeling attracted to people. And, (laughs) and then I met this stranger at an event and I felt like literally my heart racing And it didn't feel like the other times in my life when I felt attracted to someone. And I think it was just because, I don't know, just because, you know, maybe it was making me anxious because then I'd have a lot to look at. The whole scenario, you you (laughs) spell out going down the rabbit hole better than anyone ever has, in my opinion. You go go from, you know, yeah, well, I probably am not going to get to keep this job being a comedian, but I'm going to end up being a spokesperson for this ailment that I must have. (laughs) Right. And, and and it'll be some great story that that I started it on this, you know, comic tour that I was doing. And, you know, it's just so funny how you were. Well, yeah, it was the crazy. first time. It, it was just like my heart was beating in a certain way. And I thought, oh, I really do have something wrong. So anyway, yeah, there have been moments where if I don't understand what a feeling is, I get really anxious about it. But I haven't had that in a long time. And I say now I really don't have health anxiety to the point where one of the safest places for me is a hospital, a doctor's office, a dentist office, you know, so I don't anymore have health anxiety, but I, I used to, but I, I stay up on top of my health. I mean, I'm my, you know, breast exams every year and pap smears and I am on it. I, I think as with most anxious people, when something's actually wrong, we kind of thrive. <laughs> That's an so I, I don't thank God. I do not have health anxiety anymore. Well, I have enough for both of us. What happens for anxiety sisters? I think that, you know, our anxiety picks a particular focus. Yeah. So for you, transportation and and that kind of thing. And and really, so there wasn't a lot of room left to be anxious about the health part. I mean, you know, your your energy can only be focused in so many places. That makes sense. And I think with the transportation stuff, it all goes to like the very deep fear of alone in the universe, right? They won't be able to find me. But if I'm at the hospital and they're operating as much as I don't want cancer, they know where I am. There's five people working on me, you know, but I never freak out. And they're always trying to calm me down now. It's probably not anything. And I'm like, I'm literally fine. Like, you don't even have to do all this. I'm totally fine. But they'll be like, it says on your chart, you have anxiety. I'm like, weirdly not about this. So just, you don't have to. You know? <laughs> if you told me I had to go on like a space shuttle to cure it, I would be freaking out. <laughs> yes. Transportation anxiety is one of the big phobia categories, you know, so it's really, really common that people have that. So it's health anxiety, but transportation anxiety is particularly common. 
it's really, really disabling to be afraid to drive in most of this country. But it was disabling to be afraid to go on the subway for me. Yeah. Or, you know, or a train, you know, of any kind. So, but being disabled with your driving, being challenged with your driving is just, you know, torturous in most places. I had that and still do really when I, you know, I had to really, because I've li- lived in LA the last 20 years and re- having to just do it, just get on those yes. freeways. Oh, yes. Abby can tell you, I had horrendous, <laughs> horrendous phobias around transportation and really had to work on them very, very hard. And um, she almost kicked me out of the car on her wedding day because I was like, totally had a panic attack because oh. it started to rain. <laughs> the only time it was her wedding day. So she was a little panicked too. But it was the only time I ever cursed at her. So I, I want to talk about your comedy for a second. Your, sure. Your comedy has certain themes, one of which is not giving into the shoulds that exist for women in this country. For example, that, you know, women should be married and have children by the time they're, they're our age, right? And a lot of your comedy, the, the themes swirl around your authentic self and the choices that you've made and that the fact that you're, you are happily not married with children and that, you know, you didn't bow down to the shoulds, which... In, in Mags in my book, we talk a lot about how that is a real cause of anxiety for women, that mm. there are these shoulds out there. So I was wondering if you could talk about that journey, how, how you're so comfortable in your own skin that you can push against those outside forces and, and not be should upon. I Yeah, I never had it in, in the marriage and kids area. I, I can't, you know, I wish I could give a blueprint to anyone who wants to feel comfortable in it. I Looking back on it now, I'm going to credit my anxiety for that because when you're anxious about nuclear war and planes and travel, like I said, the respite for me was dance and piano and all the artistic things I pursued and dreaming of moving to New York city someday. Of course I was a weird kid where my parents were, they had me at 38. So in the eighties, my parents were already older than most other people's parents. So I was living in like an alternate reality where like I was listening to their music and Elvis and, and knew a lot about old older things. And so in my head, I I'm moving to New York someday and it's going to be like the sixties and you know James Dean will be there and <laughs> beat poets and it's everything's in black and white. So I had this very romanticized version of what my life would look like. I loved escape and fantasy and show business and all that. So that was, I was so committed to that. That was going to get me out of my anxiety and never dawned on me that marriage and kids would be a, a thing to look forward to um, because it wasn't what soothed me. So I really feel like I went to what soothed me and what interested me. And because I had so much anxiety of things I couldn't do, I wasn't going to waste a second on anything that I wasn't interested in. It's like I truly never struggled with, should I have kids? Should I not? Um, I never thought about it. The same way that I don't think about going skiing. It doesn't interest me. And like, so I'll probably never do it, but I'm okay. And, And looking back, like, oh, I'm sure we could do a deep dive into my grandmother never learned to drive and she wanted to be a um, clothing designer, but she didn't have the money. And so she had to get married and her husband didn't want her to work and he didn't want her to drive. And he just wanted her to have kids. And she didn't really want to, but she did. She sort of let us know that. And my mom, very maternal, did want kids, but because of the way she was raised, it wouldn't dawn on my parents to tell me to have kids. They didn't think they had the answers or the template. So I didn't have those kind of parents. I didn't actually ever push against anything. They encouraged all of my fantasies and dreams and maybe lived through me a little bit. So there was no, I really never had 
even internal pressure. That's why I was so shocked when I went out into the world. It really was, I was in a bubble. I didn't know. And, you know, so it just didn't come down on me. And I'm the baby of the family. So, you know, my older sister had kids and they're all in their thirties now. And it's sort of like, there was no pressure from my parents because honestly, they're, they're 83 now. But in my childbearing years, they were in their 70s. And I think they were like, oh, we're good. We've done it. We've done the grandparent thing. <laughs> so I just kind of got lucky with where I am in the family. And But I will say the anxiety, because I was so anxious all the time that I really gave into what gave me pleasure. And if something didn't interest me, I wasn't going to do it because I already had to do so many things that caused me anxiety. I, I think it's something there, you know? But that's a superpower, Jen. Because I don't yeah. think a lot of women have that agency to say, I'm going to do what's right for me and what feels good for me. And I'm not going to waste my time with the things that don't soothe me or don't. I mean, a lot of us have wasted a lot of time on things that don't soothe us. I yeah. definitely have in my, <laughs> in my life too. But yeah, I don't know. I like, it just... It just wasn't a thing. And this kind of anxious notion, you'll regret it when you're older. It's like, God, I hope I'm um, more well-rounded and self-soothing than that, than to suddenly look back on my life as though it's a waste. And it's also an antiquated notion that a woman, in order to be fulfilled and pleased at looking back at the end of her life, she needs to have children or a husband to make that happen. I mean, we know that that's not true. We know that women can be very fulfilled doing the things that give them joy, pursuing careers. I say in my next life, yeah, um, I'm coming back as very rich, very thin, and completely uncommitted. Yeah, so, so my well, husband, it's true. Yeah, my husband said to me, he goes, "Does that mean you're not going to be married and have kids?" I said, "Not only will I not be married and have kids, but my one night stands are not going to go past midnight." extended my commitment. And I hope that they don't even speak English as a matter of fact. I mean, that's, I really am going the other way. <laughs> well, I always say like, I kind of live like a man in the sense that I just kind of do what I want. And I, yes. but the thing is like, you know, for me, part of getting married to a relationship that didn't work for me was that I was anxious about the future. And there was part of me, I think that thought, oh, like I have security. And by that, I mean, there's someone there but also his parents, you know, they'll pass away someday and then they'll give us their house. And then that will be, we can put that money in the bank. I'll never be, um, you know, worried. And if we never get jobs, I mean, it was really that. And I say, I wouldn't say this on every podcast, but people with anxiety understand your, your, your mind does think stuff like that. Like how mm -hmm. can I be safe yes. um, in a world with no security? And part of me said, I'm not exactly skipping through the streets in love, but I'm going to be safe. And I wasn't. I'm hearing you talk about how your parents never, ever pressured you into having. Yeah, yeah. And I think of myself, I guess, what does that world look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's the Catholic world where it's kind of like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. You know, like. <laughs> because but, yeah. Jewish parents will be like, you're not going to give me grandchildren for this. We straightened your teeth. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also there's that big, you know, cultural responsibility of like which I totally understand is like make more Jewish people. Like, you know, we didn't survive so much for you to stop the chain of people, you know, what you're really saying is make more anxious people. <laughs> <laughs> it's so scary, but there really is no security, you know, and I, I still have a lot of anxiety around jobs. Like, you know, I always think that people without kids, your career has to be your kid. And I'm very lazy. Like I work a lot because I don't know where the next meal's coming from. And, strike while the iron's hot. And, and I thought I'd be retired by 45. I really did. I, I mean, that was what 18 year old me thought, but I'm 47. And I, I like to do nothing. I really do like to walk and read. And I would feel no guilt or shame if I found a bag of money and never worked again. I don't have to define myself 
with career either. If I don't have kids, like if people said, what do you do? I'd go, I just alive. I do nothing. That's what I do. I breathe. Yeah. I breathe. I'm one of the lucky ones that won the lottery and got to be a human on earth. That's enough. I respirate for a living. (laughs) So that's really my goal is, is nothing. Do you think there's like a connection? Like, have you seen that out in the world where creative people seem more anxious or more depressed? I do. And I don't, I think they maybe talk about it more. So it seems that way. Yeah. I think we talk about it more. I think the interesting thing that I've noticed about creative people and maybe why we seem more stuck in a loop of suffering is the one area we don't use our creativity for is our anxiety. Mm. I think it takes, it took me until last year, not even kidding Mm. to realize why don't I combine the two in some ways, even if people make jokes about it, they're not really using their creativity in their off time to, I never use my creativity to soothe my panic and anxiety. And I had a psychiatrist, you know, he would give me my prescription for the clonopin to carry in your purse in case you panic. And he said, do you ever use your creativity during a panic attack? And I remember being so disgusted by that suggestion. I don't know why. I was just like, you know, just because I'm creative in my job doesn't mean I'm sitting around being creative all day. Like, of course, I don't apply it to my panic attacks. And my panic attacks are real and I'm suffering, you know, so dramatic. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm just thinking if you're on a plane and you're panicking, couldn't you, couldn't you make up a story about it or... And he made up this really creative story that my panic is he's like, picture you're sitting on a plane and like a dangerous mobster comes down the aisle and grabs you and says, you know, we're going to kill you at dawn. And you go, you got the wrong person, you know? And he's like, think of, think of the mobster as your anxiety coming to get you. And you go, don't come over here. You get the wrong person, you know? So for some reason, it's like, we're so precious about our creativity. We don't think it can help. And now I use it all the time. And you know how sometimes you find something and it really works and then you get better yeah. and then people don't believe you ever suffered. Right. So it's like applying my creativity to my anxiety has really helped. I come up with crazy stories and scenarios in my head that help me calm down and it works. And it's almost embarrassing that it works because it, it makes it seem like what I have isn't that serious. You know, I think no. that was the, so, so that's, I think the creative person's problem is they're so creative and they talk about it, but in real life, when they're panicking, they don't get creative. I get what you're saying because my way through anxiety is through self-talk, preferably out loud. Mm. And I've gotten quite good at it. That's what I do when I'm panicking. I start talking to myself in a really compassionate, soothing voice. And it really, it takes it down. But people say to me, really, that's your answer? You talk to yourself? That solves your anxiety? Must not have been such bad anxiety. (laughs) I know it's sort of strange, but can you give us an example of like your technique that you use? Because- I'm really thinking other people might find some solace in this. Sure. So let's say what's something that still can really trip me up is driving on the freeway. Sometimes if there's no traffic and I'm just driving, you kind of get that. um, It's a pleasant feeling actually start to zone out and it's very relaxing, but that can tip over into feelings of unreality really quick. Mm -hmm. And I start to get scared that I'm going to crash the car because I'm going to faint or something. Um, The other one is if I'm driving, there's so much traffic that it's just gridlocked. Then I start to get that feeling of, oh my God, I can't get out. I'm trapped. What if the ambulance needs to come? So when I'm in something like that, I will start saying to myself, look at all these cars around me. These are my best friends. We are having a party. And I know all of these people in the cars around me. 
And if I'm scared right now, I can turn my car off or at least put it in park and I can knock on the window and say, I'm so scared. Can I have a hug? And I picture doing that. And I picture the other person saying, you know, I'm scared too, or of course, or I say, let's have a dance party. And I just say, Jen, if it gets really bad, you can put on some music and you can knock on the cars around you and you can have a dance party or, you know, but these are all your best friends in the world because it makes me feel safe. Right. So I do that. So I just make up things. I just take it to a ridiculous fantasy. It's, it's like the opposite of catastrophizing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, by the way, I'm not saying like, and then I'm magically fine. It helps you get through. We always say you can't really stop it, but you can figure out ways to get through. I also do a thing where I, and I've told my um, podcast listeners to do this. I think of all the people that want me to get through this and I say their names out loud. I think of the next time I'm going to see them. So that kind of thing too, like this person wants this for me and that person. And, and I do that too. So that's my little creative ways of, yeah. yeah, it's all distraction, but it's really using your creativity to create the distractions. Yeah. And if I'm on a plane, it doesn't happen. I, I really don't panic on planes anymore, but I, I will start making lists of fun things I'm going to do when the plane lands. I mean, even if it's nothing like get a Dunkin' Donuts coffee at the airport. I think of like little treats I'm going to give myself when I get off the plane and things like that. Or I might make up a story about what's going on on the plane. You know, maybe I'm a spy and I really can't be panicking because I've got to keep my eye on the person next to me and what are they doing? And, you know, that kind of thing. I love this. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. this is really this great. Is so powerful. So I great. I could talk to you all day, but we're, I know. we're running out of time. But I just wanted to ask you, tell our audience about Anxiety Bites. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I have a podcast called Anxiety Bites, free wherever you get your podcasts. And I interview every week a different person. Y'all have been on my podcast. It was great. Try to hit on a different theme every week. And basically, it's as simple as I don't really want to tour doing comedy anymore. It's like, been there, done that. I wanted to finally apply my sense of humor to talking about anxiety and do an interview podcast that isn't, hello, everyone, we're talking about anxiety, you know, (laughs) the dark secret of anxiety. I wanted to have a neuroscientist on who's saying something and I want to be able to stop them and say, okay, but let's break it down and, you know, use the F word if I need to and, and have fun with it. And so honestly, the idea originated pre-pandemic and I actually wanted to do a podcast about helping people with their fears of flying. And I wanted to fly with people. Oh, that's so funny. And I thought I would do more of this American Life Story podcast where I go to the person's house, help them the day before, fly with them. Anyway, I was working on this idea basically about two weeks before we went into a global lockdown. And I thought, I don't think flying is going to be a good thing to do for a while. So I just put the idea aside. And then during the pandemic, like I, you know, have my comedy fans on social media and I noticed people were anxious and I noticed they were asking me what to do. And I'm like, I'm a comedian. Don't ask me. And uh, I I honestly naively thought that young people today have it so easy because they've Google so they can just Google it. And what I found out was nobody's Googling anything um, for various reasons, too anxious to start, don't know where to start. And I thought, well, if I do a podcast, what if someone Googles anxiety and they find my podcast is very for the person who's anxiety curious, did they have it? So that was it. I started writing a newsletter every week to whoever wanted it about anxiety. And then I thought, you know, I feel I'm a better verbal communicator sometimes than in writing. So that thus the podcast was born. It went from fear flying to 
to anxiety bites. I have yeah. to say that, you know, Mags and I listen to a lot of anxiety podcasts for obvious reasons. Yours is our favorite. Are you serious? Oh my anxiety God, Anxiety so bite is wonderful. First of all, it's so nice to laugh. As we've yeah. been doing this whole podcast, Mags and I were, were, had no problem doing a Saturday morning podcast with you. We normally wouldn't do that, but we said, oh, we'll be laughing. It'll be okay. Thank <laughs> you for making an exception. I know my work schedule is, uh, I'm tied up on weekdays right now. So this was so kind of you. Thank you so much for taking time to be with yeah. us today, Jen. We've had such a good time. Yeah. I am so grateful that I found you ladies and, uh, yeah, this was so much fun and it's always nice to talk to people who get it. Cause you don't have yeah. to, you can just be yourself and feel safe. So thank you. Well, thank you for what you're doing. Your voice in, in the mental health conversation is really powerful. And I'm having insane apartment jealousy, so I can't, I can't take it right now. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jen, that I'll have to be hearing this for the rest of the day. You will for like a few days, I think. I'm going to make Maggie a separate video of just how small it is. And she'll be like, oh, you know what? No, that doesn't. The the better. She loves small. (laughs) No, no. You know what it is? I always tell Abby, it's like when I walk into places, sometimes with very high ceilings, that's an anxious feeling for some of us. Me too. I don't like high ceilings. I don't like big open spaces. Exactly. It's the same thing. It's like, we have a lot of our anxiety stuff in common. I can tell. And, And so, you know, small for me. Perfect. Yeah. That's the one thing I don't have with fear of flying is the claustrophobia. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and I had a panic attack yesterday. I'm not kidding in my facial because the mask was too suffocating. <laughs> that could happen to me too, but I definitely, uh, but like I have like, tall ceilings in my, as, as small as Maggie likes her places as I have these really tall 14 foot ceilings in my house. That's so funny. Yeah. We're all different, but the same. Some announcements. First is if you haven't bought our book yet or read our book yet, The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide, or listen to our book. T- to tell you the truth, I sometimes put on our book to listen to. <laughs> See, I can't stand the sound of my own voice. So the last thing I'll do is listen to the book. Yeah, I'm not thrilled with my own voice either, but I really, it's been really helpful at times for me when I'm having, when I'm struggling with something to go to a certain chapter and just listen. Okay. So, so buy so our book. Please, That's the announcement. <laughs> yes. Buy our book. And if you are interested in some smaller group work, we have something called the coping crew and please just reach out to us at anxiety sisters at gmail.com, or you can um, private message us in Facebook. It's a six week group. It costs $99, but you really get a lot of coaching from us and a lot of support from the other wonderful, wonderful people in this group. Where can they find us? Um, You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on our website, www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback and especially compliments, or you have questions or an idea for a podcast, please email us. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, we so, so, so would appreciate you leaving a review wherever you're listening, SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening to us, just leave a review so that more people can learn about us. And thank you for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters, sisters, don't don't go it alone. alone. Seemed like we kind of got it. No, we didn't. been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production.